God is good. Turn in your New Testament, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 1. The book of Acts ends up with Paul in Rome under house arrest awaiting trial by the Roman authorities under Nero about the year 62 A.D. Apparently, he was released after two years, and his adversaries never showed up in court to press their case. And according to extra-scriptural sources, he took a fourth and final missionary trip, sailing all the way over to Spain, uh, and the gospel from there spread up into the British Isles before returning to uh, Asia Minor and Greece. Uh, Timothy had been kept in Ephesus to tend the church there. Titus was on the island of Crete to establish uh, local churches and leadership there, while Paul traveled on to Macedonia. But then something happened. On July 18th, 64 A.D., a fire started in the enormous Circus Maximus Stadium in Rome. When the fire was finally extinguished, six days later, 10 of Rome's 14 districts had burned to the ground. Ancient historians blamed Rome's infamous emperor Nero for starting the fire. Nero falsely accused Christians of the crime, and Peter and Paul, as pillars of the church, were arrested by Nero in the year 67 AD and ultimately put to death. Paul, by beheading, he was a Roman citizen, Peter was not, and he was crucified. 2 Timothy is the last written word that we have from the Apostle Paul. This is where his whole life's ministry has come down to this letter as he prepares young Timothy to pick up the standard that he is forced to relinquish. He's awaiting execution in the Mamertime dungeon in Rome. He knew God had shown him clearly that his, his life's work was done, his life almost at an end. And it didn't cause him any fear or doubt or concern. But there are some important things that he felt the need to impress upon Timothy, though Timothy had probably heard these things his whole life. There is that time for every one of us where we will stand in God's presence. And I pray that we will have raised up a generation behind us to take over the work that God had us to tackle. None of us will live forever. We have to be able to hand it off. Uh, to those that will follow in our footsteps, but make sure that all of the footsteps you leave for others to follow lead to God. Not the exercise of the flesh. There are so many that live in compromise today. Uh, there is such pressure put upon Christians to embrace the corruption of the world. Here, this is the most personal letter I've ever read in my whole life. Of This this letter will bring you to, your, to tears as you realize he pours out his heart into this young man that he'd embraced earlier on decades before as his own son in the faith. He had no children that are recorded for us, and yet he, Timothy and Titus and people like that, Epaphroditus, Epaphras, people that he'd poured his life into were the legacy that he's leaving behind. Someday I will leave this earth. The legacy I want to be left behind should be one. I want it to be one of investing in spiritual issues. I don't care if my grandchildren remember my hobbies. 
I don't care about that. What a shallow legacy. Oh, dad was into motorcycles and guitars, and that was his whole world. Well, God help me if that's my legacy. If my legacy is anything other than Jesus Christ, I have failed. If the legacy you live is anything besides Jesus Christ, if you are known more for anything else in this world than your faith in the personal Lord Jesus Christ, you need to reconsider life. We are so caught up with the things of this world today, and Satan has convinced the church that it's okay. So Paul is going to harp throughout this letter. He'll sprinkle in these little nuggets here and there about holiness. The root of the word means to be separate from the world, not to be a part of it, not to be engrossed in it or obsessed with it. It's to be free from it. Paul said, I have died with Christ, died to the things of the world. Corpses aren't attracted to much as a general rule. They're certainly not attracted to the things of the world. You and I are walking corpses. We are dead men <laughs> waiting the resurrection and the life that is soon to come. He addresses Timothy as his beloved son and he urges Timothy to come to Rome before, he says, before winter, please. Paul would be executed in the winter that fell between 67 and 68 A.D. And you think, what a monstrous act, a heinous act that was committed against the church by extinguishing these two great lights of Peter and Paul. And yet God has made sure that Christianity has survived for the next 2,000 years. You and I are here this morning as a testimony to those that were taught by people like Peter and Paul and the apostles, Timothy, Titus, so many others. We owe this debt of gratitude to and he's going to be calling Timothy throughout this letter to reassess who you're living for and why. What are you living for and why? You should know what you believe. You should know in whom you believe. Christianity for us is a life-changing experience. It's not a religion to be embraced. It's a God to be embraced in a personal relationship. It's not what you know that's going to get you into heaven. It is who you know personally. So Paul speaks to, from his personal experience, Timothy, I know you, you know me, you know my heart. I don't want my grandchildren when I pass away to say, Papa was known for his hot dog eating prowess. He loved his motorcycles, he loved his hot dogs, he, he could eat Vienna sausage out of the can and drink the juice afterwards with a smile on his face. Ah, it's a shallow legacy. I don't want my grandkids to care less what I eat what my hobbies before I got really serious about the Lord Jesus Christ were. You don't want your children eulogizing you at your funeral about what your hobbies were. You take that legacy to heaven, I guarantee you you're going to pass through the fiery judgment up there with the smell of smoke on your clothes. You may make it into heaven, but you'll be patting out the flames and go, whoa, my, I'm just glad I'm here. Don't do that. Live for Christ now. Don't live for the things of this world. You will be tested on this constantly throughout life. Paul starts out in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life, eternal life, that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy. It doesn't say my dear son in the original. It says my beloved son, agape, 
is the root word. As God has loved me, Timothy, I have loved you. And you have loved the saints that I left you in Ephesus to minister to. It's all about love. I think that Christianity's forgotten that today. We've exchanged love for knowledge. Now it's all about knowledge. If it's not about knowledge, it's about entertainment. Why do you come to church? To hear something new? Bible's been written in its current form for 2,000 years. There is nothing new. But there is a constant admonition to put into practice the things that you know. Be holy. Fill yourself with His Holy Spirit. Stir into full flame the embers of the Holy Spirit within you. You know, Paul, when he had returned from his third missionary journey, and there was a riot there in Jerusalem as he was falsely accused by people of dragging Gentiles up there, he, part of his testimony when he asked the, uh, uh, the, the Roman uh, guard to speak, in Acts 22.10, uh, he's sharing his testimony, and he was told, Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. That's what he says here in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He had an assignment given him by God. You do too. Your assignment may not be a calling of an apostle or a missionary, a pastor, teacher, but I can tell you this, every single one of us in this room has an assignment to be completed by the power of God's Holy Spirit in you. And you say, well, I don't know what that is. Good. Your homework is to pray about that. Let God reveal it to you. Search out His Word. Be faithful with the work that He has put in front of you. Be an ambassador for Christ Jesus. Don't be ashamed at mentioning Jesus in the workplace. Don't be ashamed of telling people about your faith. Don't be ashamed of mentioning God and standing up for godly morals and values. I love it when we set that kind of... We're salt and light in this world. Have you ever gone to Walmart on a Saturday and been tempted to tell somebody to put on some clothes? You know what I mean. Dress, people go dressed poorly out there in the world today. You just want to encourage them, cover it up. Would you dress appropriately? People dress so poorly today, and it causes Christian men to stumble. What should Christian men do? Keep your eyes on the pavement. Notice all of the chewing gum that is on the Walmart parking lot. Your wife, hang on to the basket if you need to, your life, because if you look anywhere else, your, your wife has my permission to slap you. Be careful what you look at, gentlemen. Ladies, be careful what you wear. You don't want to stumble anybody. These are practical matters that are a part of being holy. God has called us to holiness. We've got to get a handle on that because we are up to our eyeballs in the world today. And we brought those values into the church. You can't look like the world. You can't dress like the world. You can't talk like the world. You can't act like the world because you are not of the world. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a child of God. Act like it. You have faith. Be faithful. Not rocket science. Notice that Paul's assignment was to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I have 
the calling of God on my life to simply be a pastor teacher. I'm kind of a one-string banjo. That's all I got. I can't be everything to everybody. I wish I could be. I got a, it's a one-string banjo. I'll play it for all I got. I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God. Well, Pastor Jim, how come you don't have an invitation at the end of service? Number one, I'm not a Southern Baptist. Number two, Holy Spirit didn't prompt me. Number three, I'm not an evangelist. Do you have any other questions? It doesn't matter what background you come out of. Well, in the church I used to go to, they had one every single time they had church service, really. You got chapter and verse for that out of the New Testament? You don't. So don't lay that expectation on other people, pastors or churches. That's just what you're accustomed to, and that's fine. But let's not say that that rubber stamping, that's what you have to do. How about we're free and open to let God be the Lord of His people? Let the Holy Spirit lead and guide us in the orderly way that we worship Him. Not all are called to be apostles or pastor teachers, but each one of us does have a unique assignment from God. He means for us to complete that assignment in our lifetimes, and that assignment is discovered fresh every brand new day. What do you have for me today, Lord? Be open to that. Be asking for that. Be seeking that out. Lord, is there, is there some person, is there something I need to pray about, a, a person I need to minister to, a phone call I need to make, a person I need to forgive? Instead, we're obsessed with what? TV? Hobbies? Recreation? That's not why you're here. <laughs> As a Christian, that's not why you're here. I don't know if anybody ever told you this before, but God did not put you on this planet to see how much of your flesh you could indulge. Did you know that? For some of you, this may be a real wake-up call. It's not about you. It's not about your hobbies. I don't care what your hobbies are. And you know what I hate most of all when we come together for church? People talking about their hobbies in the foyer. Nobody wants to hear about that. That doesn't build them up in the Lord. People want to talk about themselves. Nobody wants to hear about you. They want to hear about the Lord. What's God doing in your life? Maybe we talk about everything else because God's not doing anything in our life. We're not reading, we're not praying, we're not seeking His face, and so people have no curiosity about where our walk with the Lord is at all. We got no fruit. People see no fruit, so they don't ask spiritual questions. We don't have spiritual conversations. Maybe we should reassess that. How's your walk with the Lord? How's your walk with the Lord? You, are you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit regularly? Are you in His Word daily? Are you praying? Are you seeking His face? Are you looking for opportunities to share your faith, to be salt and light in this sinful, fallen world? We've got an assignment. we got an assignment. For some of us, you're called to be a mother, a housewife by the will of God, a mechanic for the glory of God, an ambassador for the glory of God, a landscaper, a secretary, a Sunday school teacher by the will of God. But be open God, use me for your glory. And he'll do it in ways that you may have never even thought about. Let God be God in your life. You just be a pliable vessel in his hands. Do with me whatever you want, Lord. Whatever's for your glory. I know you got an assignment for me today. Don't know what it is. But I'm asking that you show me. Give me ears to hear, eyes to see. Paul, for Paul, the will of God was everything in his life. What were Paul's hobbies? Are there any recorded for us in Scripture? None. None. What was Jesus' hobbies? 
What were the things? Did he like to go racing or boating or skiing? Or, I mean, what did he live for? The will of God. Isn't it interesting? There is nobody in the Bible you can point to as having a hobby to provide them distraction from the work of the ministry. Nobody. And yet today we think, well, that's all important. You've got to have a hobby. Make God your hobby. Make God your hobby. Make the study of the Word of God your hobby. For Paul, the will of God was everything, and he saw his current situation, even here in the Mamertime dungeon awaiting execution, he saw his current situation as part of that will of God. He knew that his ministry was coming to a close. He knew that he was turning this over to this young man that was not ready for ministry. If I were to die tomorrow, whoever, to took, whoever would take my pulpit, can I tell you this? They will not be ready. Here's the biggest problem of all. They think that they will be. They have no idea. No idea. It is sometimes men are forced into greatness because somebody else in front of them died. And it's a panic moment where they pray really hard because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure what I should do. You know, I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the scholar that Paul was. I'm sure Timothy is thinking to himself, Paul was an evangelist. Oh, I can't do that. I can't, I'm not a learned rabbi like Paul was stuttering under Gamaliel. I'm just little old Timothy. And true to his name, he was timid. Very timid individual. Can God use timid people? Of course he can. He's the one who made you the way you are doesn't mean that you can live out your life as a clam in the shell. Get out of your shell once in a while. It's good for you. It's good for clams. Gives us a chance to eat them. <laughs> to Timothy, he says in verse 2, my dear son, my beloved son. And again, Paul adds mercy and grace in, in his greeting. Mercy was something he was not receiving from Nero. But mercy was something that he was receiving from God even while he sat in prison. Mercy is poured out, multiplied to us daily, all of us that are seeking it, all of us that are asking for it. How much mercy do you need? How much grace do you need? I, I just need buckets full on a daily basis. Maybe you don't think you do. As you mature, you will find out that, in fact, you do. But maybe this morning you don't feel like you need much of anything from God. But sometimes in your life you'll have these episodes where you'll find out that God is all you need when God is all you have. And he'll show himself to be strong on your behalf in that moment, and that's okay. All you need in life is God. Whatever else you think you need, you don't. You're wrong. All you need is God. We chase after everything else, and we stake our reputation, our hopes, and our dreams, and our aspirations, and our legacy, our self-worth. If I were to stake my self-worth on my ability to run a 60-second mile or a 64-minute mile, I, I would never think well of myself at all. God doesn't care how well you do at your hobbies. He doesn't care how hot a tennis player you are or skier or mountain bike rider. God could not care less. Why do you care so much about it? We need to rethink things, and that's what Paul is telling Timothy, starting in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly 
remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears when they had separated at the last meeting. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now also lives in you. I, I want to just start off with this thing he said in verse 3. Paul says, I have a clear conscience. I serve God with... Can I tell you, a clear conscience is a result of a life lived well before the Lord. That's where a clear conscience comes from. It doesn't come from perfection. It doesn't come from legalism or trying harder. It comes as a result of a life lived well before the Lord, in complete dependence upon Him. Why don't we turn to God in our problems? Why do we feel the need to be so self-sufficient? Our finances fall apart, but we don't pray. Our health falls apart, but we don't pray. We know that He loves us because we've gone to churches where they tell us that all our lives, but we don't act like He loves us. We know that He's trustworthy, but we don't trust Him. We walk in fear knowing that He had died to deliver us from fear. A clear conscience is the ability to say, I have done my level best to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's where a clear conscience comes from. I've given my best to be faithful to Him to the very end. If you have faith, be faithful. It's really that simple. Be faithful. He has been to you and I. And I notice Paul's prayer life. He says, night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers there in verse 3. What a great inspiration his example is to me. He had told the Thessalonian believers, pray without ceasing. Can I tell you that the men God uses are men of prayer. The women that God uses are women of prayer. And Paul is constantly, in every one of his letters, talking about his prayer life. It was important to Paul. He, he knew what Jesus had said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul knew that, so he prayed like that. Jesus, I can't do anything apart from you. But I can do all things through you who give me strength. Paul was a man who lived and slept and breathed prayer. He lived in such close relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. And I think that's often the case with, of the people that God uses, people that are nearest to his heart, that know him the best, that are the most open, that desire his working in their life. If you don't desire it, can I tell you, God's not going to force himself upon you. He will never put a gun to your head and say, read your Bible or I pull the trigger. He'll never threaten you. You better read or you're not going to heaven. You better pray harder. You better go to church more. You better be more faithful. You better get a curb on your language. God's a gentleman. and He will never go where he is not asked. James says sometimes we have not because we ask not. You don't want God to be Lord of your life? He won't be. You're on your own. You want to indulge in a life of sin, self-indulgence, living like you're a part of the world as part of the kingdom of God? You notice that God will let you do that. It'll be to your own detriment. It may cost you your life, your family, or your children. But God will let you and I make foolish decisions apart from Him. And Paul's telling Timothy, don't do that. 
Don't do that. There is too much at stake here. Timothy, I'm giving you the mantle of succession. You've got to continue the work of building people up in the Lord. But understand this, apart from the Lord, you can't do anything. You need Him desperately, so be a man of prayer. I've set you that example. Follow in those footsteps. Timothy, verse 4, had apparently been in tears at the apostle's last departure, and I think that even great men and women in ministry can at times be very lonely, discouraged, and in need of support from fellow Christians. You've been in that place before, haven't you? I know it's a place of vulnerability, and it's a place that you don't feel comfortable in sharing with a lot of people, but can I tell you, the Bible tells us to share our burdens with one another. Let somebody else help carry the load, love on you, encourage you, and pray for you. No man is an island unto himself, the poet said so long ago. We need each other. Verse 5, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Every possibility that Paul had led both of these women to faith in Christ Jesus. And grandmas, when they're praying for their grandkids, there's power there. There's power there, you know. So every godly mom, every godly grandma and grandpa and father, boy, you can input into your kids' lives some spiritual truth. I mean, plant some seeds. Plant some seeds on a daily basis. Here's why it's important. Your kids, especially your teenagers, will never do what you say. Your kids will always do what you do. You get drunk all the time? Guess what's going to happen to your kids? You live for the flesh? Guess what's going to happen to your kids? You show them by example that God is not your priority. They will always follow your example. They'll never do what you say. That's just the nature of rebellious kids. They'll always follow your example. You get the kids you deserve Plant seeds of faith in them and water and fertilize those seeds daily. There is so much at stake. Otherwise, we lose the next generation. I don't want that to happen. I know you don't. So we set those seeds in the hearts of those that will follow in our footsteps. Parents, grandparents can have such an influence in their children and grandchildren's lives, and I think that is precious. So I don't ever want there to be an encounter with, with my children or my grandchildren where God's not a part of the conversation. He says in verse 5, literally in the original language, uh, Paul recommend and commends Timothy's unhypocritical faith. Think about that for a second. His unhypocritical hypocritical faith. In other words, he said he believed in God and he acted like it. He said he received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and his life was changed because of it. He believed in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and his life demonstrated that. There was no hypocrisy between his statement of faith and the way he lived out his life. That is glorious. You want to strive to live an unhypocritical life. Don't be one thing at work and another thing at home. Timothy's father, here's a guy who had a dysfunctional past. His father was an unbelieving Greek, according to Acts 16.1. 
But both his mother and his grandmother became Christians, apparently under Paul's preaching at Lystra in Asia Minor on his first missionary trip, and they just kept pouring into this young man. But not only do we have the opportunity to pour into the generation after us, I want you to notice, highlight, if you will, verse 6. We have a personal responsibility to kindle into full flame the embers of the Holy Spirit in each one of us. We pour into the lives of others, but dear friends, you cannot pour something else into the life of someone else that you don't have. If your well spiritually isn't full, you've got nothing to give someone else. You can't tell them to read their Bible if you're not reading your Bible. You can't tell them about faith in Jesus Christ if you're walking in fear. You can't tell them about being holy while walking a compromised life in the world. You must live an unhypocritical faith. That carries the weight of, of testimony that is valid. But our personal responsibility, for this reason, look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, you... Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind or self-discipline. That means you can say no to the flesh. You make up your mind not to walk in the flesh. Fan into full flame. What it says is the embers in your life it once was a bonfire. Your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ was a bonfire, and you have let it lapse into where it's just a bed of coals now. You've lost your zeal. You've walked away to some degree that has cost you spiritually. You're not the person you used to be in your faith. We use the term backslidden to describe that today. But what he says in verse 6 is kindle anew. In other words, the picture is to put the bellows to the bed of coals, put some wood on it, and fan that baby. Keep on fanning it. Keep on keeping on fanning it. He puts it in the active voice, the verb in the original language, which means only Timothy can do that. His mother and his grandmother could sow seed into his life, encourage faith in his life, but only you can do something about your spiritual condition. Take ownership of that. I'm a sloppy Christian because I've made that choice. I'm a good Christian because I've made that choice. I'm striving to be an unhypocritical Christian because I have made that choice personally. Got to take ownership of this instead of blaming it. We can all, like Timothy, Timothy said, you know, I'm a drunk because my dad was a drunk. My dad was an unsaved Gentile. I, you know, I'm going to walk in his ways. You know, I got no choice. It's that genetic predisposition. No, God was at work in his mother and his grandmother. They were pouring into this boy's life. But now he has a responsibility, now that he's grown up, to continuously keep on fanning into flame. It's a live coal and the bellows used uh, for the kindling, this this gift, whatever this gift is that had come to Timothy by the laying on of Paul's hands is a spiritual gift. They're listed for us throughout uh, chapters of the Bible, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Spiritual gifts are given severally to each one of us in ways that only the Holy Spirit determines. And the spiritual gift won't look the same in you as it does somebody else. 
Each of us is unique, so God uniquely equips and gifts each one of us. Not all of us have all of the spiritual gifts, but all of us have at least one dominant spiritual gift. Perhaps others that are secondary to that. That's different than the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is available to all Christians in all places at all times. You say, well, I don't feel much love, joy, peace, and patience. What's the problem? You're not near to God. It's like you can't feel the heat of a light bulb until you get close enough to it to feel the warmth coming off of it. I'm not talking about LEDs, but incandescents. Remember those incandescent bulbs that actually used to get warm on the outside? You got to get close enough to feel the warmth. You need more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You need some self-control. What you need is God. Fan into full flame the embers that you have already inside of you. Just fan it into full flame. How do I do that, Pastor Jim? Reading His Word, praying, seeking His face, worshiping, fellowshipping, church. You know the answer. You already know the answer. Fan, that's your part and mine. How many of you know that every Christian has one or more spiritual gifts, which, by the way, defines you theologically as a charismatic? Scary term to some people. Oh, I don't know. I'm not charismatic. I don't, I don't swing from chandeliers, bark or howl at the moon or chase cars. That defines you as weird. That doesn't define you as charismatic. You may be weird. I don't, don't know if you do those things on a regular uh, basis or not. But a charismatic Christian is one who operates in the spiritual gifts that God has imparted to him and does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have the gift of evangelism, the Holy Spirit will be prompting you all the time to share your faith in every given situation where you're at. If, if you have the gift of teaching, you love to teach. You just love sharing God's Word. I, I love teaching. I love, I, you know, and every teacher that I know has the gift of teaching in different measure and different kind, and that's great. My bent and background is medicine and engineering. Uh, things like that all come to play uh, at pre-med. I have a pre-med degree. These things come to play in, in my teaching and preaching. I have a love of ancient history because I find that it provides such a context for the Bible that we hold in our hands. But I'm not like anybody else, and nobody's like me, so you can't ever compare pastor to pastor. But they love teaching the Word of God. I remember the first time I got to teach it, Costa Mesa, when I was on staff with Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Uh, the first time I was going to fill this pulpit, the senior associate pastor, who was a retired Marine Corps drill sergeant, tells you everything you need to know. He, he never left the Marine Corps, and it never left him, man. Squatty body, we called him when he wasn't listening. You know, the little short guy whose head kind of disappeared into his shoulders. He was just, he was a refrigerator of a man, you know, just rock solid and had the demeanor uh, that he had learned well in boot camp at, at Paris Island and, and brought to bear as he lorded it over the us associate pastors who needed, quite frankly, all of the discipline that he dished out. One day, Pastor Chuck was out of the pulpit and asked me to preach on a Sunday morning for him. So just prior to coming out on the first service Sunday morning, Romaine comes out and he says, ah, Jim, I want you to, I want you to uh, 
to remember a few things. And I said, sure, Romaine, what's up? He goes, number one, <clears throat> there's 35,000 people in attendance. Have you ever preached in front of a crowd of 35,000 people before? And I said, no. No, doesn't, doesn't much bother me one way or another. There's 35 or three and a half. That they all need feed, and I don't care how many there are. And he said, well, that's not all. He said, there's a radio listening audience live up and down the eastern seaboard of a million people. So you'll be teaching and preaching live to 1,035,000 people. Don't screw up. He had the gift of, edu- of encouragement and edification, and I thanked him for it and, and went outside and told people of their true identity in Jesus Christ. And I felt as just at home and as nat- natural as I could. God gave me the gift of teaching. Now, some of you said, I can't do public speaking. I would stand up and pass out or throw up or something or both. It's not your gift. Find out what your gift is. Work in it. Work that thing. Keep fanning into flame. That gift that you use. The gifts are given in kind of preliminary form that's perfected through use. So with the spiritual gifts, use it or lose it. If you have the gift of tongues, you should be using that on a daily basis where there is an opportunity even when the assembly is gathered together, if there is is an interpretation, if there is a prophecy, there's all sorts of spiritual gifts that you need to explore. God, you already have one. I don't know what it is. Maybe you don't know what it is, but you should ask God to show you what it is and do a little homework on it yourself out of chapters like Romans and 1 Corinthians 12 and stuff like that, and then operate in those spiritual gifts. And it'll feel as natural as can be. All of my life as a Christian, I've prayed for the gift of tongues and never got it. So God gives it to my wife instead. That's not fair. But my wife can't teach her way out of a wet paper bag. She doesn't have the gift of teaching. So when people say, well, how how come your wife doesn't teach the women's group in the church? That's easy. She doesn't have the gift of teaching. The most frustrating thing you could ever do in life is to try to exercise a spiritual gift you don't have. Who of you in this room is scared to death of public speaking? Can I see your hands? All right. Now, how about I ask you to preach next Sunday morning? Allison, you're shaking your head. No, don't throw up, honey. Please don't throw up. Don't pass out. She doesn't have that gift. That's fine. I will never ask anybody who doesn't have the gift of teaching to teach. They can't do that. That's like me asking you to speak in tongues. If you don't have the gift, you're going to look like a moron or an idiot or come up with something stupid. A friend of mine many, many years ago was baptized in a a very, very Pentecostal church, and they expected him when he got baptized in front of the whole church of a 1,000 people to speak in tongues. So he came up out of the water, and they stuck a microphone in his face and goes, let it go, brother. Well, he didn't know if he was supposed to break wind or speak in tongues, or he had no idea. Let it go. What does that mean? I mean, he's a brand-new Christian, but then it dawned on him, well, it's a Pentecostal church. They want me to speak in tongues. And he didn't have the gift. He didn't have the gift. So he remembered that I rode a Honda motorcycle 
And so when they stuck the, he finally said, he rode a Honda, he rode a Honda, he rode a Honda. Speaking in tongues, and everybody broke out in applause. Well, there was such pressure put upon him to exercise the spiritual gift he didn't have. God did not call you to do any of that. Please don't. That puts such stress upon you. But do exercise the spiritual gifts that you do have. Look at the list sometime at your convenience. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4. All of us are to be pursuing the production of spiritual fruit in our lives. That should be evident in all of us. So, while the spiritual gifts are very important, uh, fruit is equally or more important. What you are is God's gift to you, but what you make of yourself is your gift to God. Did you catch that? What you are is God's gift to you. Talents and abilities and physical stature and spiritual gifts. What you make of yourself is your gift to God. Don't be stingy. Give Him all of yourself, all of your wants and, and don't wants and hobbies and habits and past, present, future. Give it all to God. Don't waste time on the things of this world. There's not that much time left. If you look at verse 7, you notice that Timothy was indeed timid, for, but so he reminds his young protege, God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity. Different translations word it differently. Some people really struggle with fear, doubt, insecurity. Oh, I'm scared to death of this. Oh, I can't, can't do this. I can't do that. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline, a sound mind, if you will. If you have any fear about anything today, give it to the Lord, please. He doesn't mean for you to walk under that burden. That's not yours to bear. Trust God. Fear and faith are diametrically opposed to each other. You can't have the one without forfeiting the other. God has not given us a spirit of fear, of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, sound mind, self-discipline. I can say no. Some of us really struggle with self-discipline. So every New Year's resolution, I'm going to lose 10 pounds this year, but your self-discipline is gone. So you put on weight over the holidays. And you say, well, I'll, put it I'll, I'll take it off next year. Or I'll be busier this summer and I'll be able to lose that weight I've always wanted to lose. Self-discipline is a gift from God, not self-effort. That discipline comes from being a disciplined person regarding your spiritual walk. If you don't have discipline in your walk with the Lord, you, I guarantee you, you won't have discipline anywhere else. You'll be in bondage to your addictions the rest of your life. The answer is God. The answer is God. We all have flesh that is prone to addictions and afflictions, right? We all do. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and your flesh won't get the best of you you'll be able to get the best of your flesh. If you don't put a nail in it, it'll put a nail in you. 
but decide today who you will serve. Verse 8, so do not be ashamed, Timothy, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Say holy life. That's what God expects from you. Holy means separated from the world. You're not of the world. You've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has saved us and He saved us and called us to a holy life, set apart for for Him. Interesting. What people live for these days, isn't it? (laughs) Every time you turn on the the news. There's some very interesting things out there. Paul says, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's why we pursue a holy life. It pleases God. It pleases God. God, I am yours. I'm blood-bought. I will say no to my flesh. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can take control of this sinful fallen flesh of mine and put on a power and love and a sound mind, as verse 7 says. This grace was given us, verse 9 continues, in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This is what God had set apart for you. Victory, not defeat. Victory, not defeat. And yet so many Christians live on a low level. No victory, no joy, no love. And they just They know, they already know because they have the Holy Spirit. They know this isn't God's will for them, but live down there anyway. And they languish in that place of of despair and a lack of victory and despondency, and they never seem to have victory. The answer is Jesus Christ. Pursue Him, and He will pull you out of that dark prison. But that's the answer, and you must pursue fan into full flame, that faith, those embers, that you have to do that. If, if I could do it for you, I would. If I could tackle you in the parking lot and inject you with some Holy Ghost, I would do that. You'd have road rash on your nose before you got out of the parking lot if I could do that. I can't. I can't. But you can. You need more of the Holy Spirit. I know you do. Ask Seek and knock, Jesus said. The door will be open to you. The prayer will be answered. But you've got to do the asking and the seeking and the knocking. We can't stay down here in the land of discouragement and depression thinking that things are going to change. Einstein said the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over again but expecting a different outcome. You don't want to walk in through life with a billboard on the top of your head that says, I'm insane. Because I keep doing the same old, same old, same old, same old, same old, and nothing ever changes, but I expect a different outcome. Really? The answer is Jesus Christ. Verse 10, but it has now been revealed to us through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought Life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is the good news. Jesus came to die for your sins so that you didn't have to. He came to give you life because the world only offers death. The answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
And I'm preaching to people today, and some of them are going to reject everything I said and are going to continue to live on a low level with no victory, no change, constant despondency and discouragement. And you know what the answer is. You're in a prison of your own making. Jesus died to open those prison doors, dear friends. Don't stay in the cell. He sprung the jail. You're able to walk out of this bondage to sin and death. You can stop this cycle. Fear has no hold on you. Satan has no grip on your life. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the victory that Christ died to give us. Verse 11, and this and of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering because as I am, yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. I know him. I know Jesus. I know that he lived and died, rose again. I have seen him. I have beheld him. It explains, verse 12 does, why Paul was so bold in his work and how he could have felt honored by his circumstances which would have discouraged anybody else. He says, I know whom I have believed. He knew the God he trusted in and served. You have to know what you believe as a Christian. You have to know in whom you have believed. That's more important. When we know how great God is, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, how great is his love for us, uh, the God of glory, when he becomes a, a part of our lives, then, then we can have real boldness. We're not in bondage to fear or doubt or insecurity anymore. He goes on in verse 12 and he says, I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced utterly that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What is that? My whole life. My whole future, my family, everything else, it's in heaven. I've made a deposit into the first bank of heaven. It's secure. Nobody's going to break in and rob that place. That's where I've made my investment in this life. I've entrusted it to him. Paul uses a banking term to describe it. That which I've put on deposit as, as with the bank. And on the day that Jesus Christ comes again... <laughs> Our reward is sure. I've committed and entrusted to him everything. That's why I don't walk in fear. I've given it to him. I don't walk in fear of death, doubt, fear, insecurity, the green furry pizza I ate when I know I shouldn't have. I don't walk in fear about these things. I don't walk in fear of COVID. I don't walk in fear. I mean, there's people that walk in bondage and all sorts of fears. Deal with it. You're bearing a burden that Satan wants to put on you to crush you with. Give it to God. Give it to God. I entrust everything into him. Verse 13, what you have heard from me keep is the pattern of sound teaching, Timothy, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the foundation of all of this. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You guard the gospel truth. You teach the truth of the Word of God and nothing but the truth. But stick with the Word of God. It'll step on some people's toes, but don't sugarcoat it. Don't water it down. Give them the Word of God, Timothy, from beginning to end. Encourage them in it to put it into practice. Guard 
with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, this precious treasure. Paul had described it, this treasure that we have as being enclosed in jars of clay. Remember that line out of, out of 1 Corinthians? He said, we have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile, delicate pottery, you know, which reminds us of how weak our flesh is. Yeah, yeah. But Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. So there is the potential for you and I to be stronger when our flesh has fallen apart than we ever were under normal circumstances. There is that possibility that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called in His purposes. All things in your life? Yeah. Everything that's happening? Yeah. God's got this. God's got this. He doesn't want you worrying about it, freaking out about it, getting all tense all about it, you know, getting uppity about it, complaining, whining, murmuring, grumbling. Look at what happened when the nation of Israel did that. Didn't turn out well. So don't murmur, grumble, or complain. Trust. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. My son's got some upcoming uh, surgeries. Uh, my son, Luke, my handicapped son. And uh, I've been asked, well, aren't you worried? Not a bit. He's had brain surgeries since he was born, multiple brain surgeries. And, you know, so for some people, that's scary territory. Not for the man or woman of faith. God's got this. Who's the great physician? Who is the God who heals? Huh? Do you know him? I do. Then what's to worry about? My God has this. You know, verse 14 Guard the good deposit. In other words, God had made an investment in Timothy. Paul had made an investment in Timothy. So you guard that which we put sown into your life. You guard that gospel truth. You guard that faith that was entrusted to you. Don't let that fail. It's only through the Holy Spirit or that Timothy or any of us can guard God's deposit inside of us. And he personally indwells us, lives in us, and every, every true believer but verse 15 reminds us as we close out this morning's study, you know that everyone in the province of Asia, Paul says, has deserted me, including uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Don't know who these two guys are. It's the only time they're mentioned in Scripture. But they deserted Paul when he needed them most. You know that everyone has deserted me. May the Lord show mercy to the house household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Uh, on the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day, the day of the Lord. You know very well in how many ways he has helped me in Ephesus. You know, verse 15 reminds me in this life, many people will desert you. People will hurt you. They will wound you. Can I tell you this? That's a burden that God didn't mean for you to bear either. Give that to the Lord. I mean, think about that. How many people have left you in your life or deserted you or abandoned you? Husbands, wives, friends, co-workers. All of us have been hurt and wounded and betrayed, every single one of us. I just want you to look at this for a different perspective. Have you counted up how many people that did that to you so far? Five, six, ten. 
Think about it from a senior pastor's perspective. If everybody who'd ever gone through this church over the last 33 years was here this morning, we'd have a church of 10,000 people. You think you've been hurt, wounded, betrayed, and left? You ought to think about it from a senior pastor's perspective. You ought to think about it from Jesus' perspective, from Paul's perspective. What do you do when you're hurt and wounded? What do you do when you're abandoned? You go to the one who will never leave you or forsake you. His name is Jesus Christ. He loves you with all of his heart. He is faithful to the end. He will never leave you or forsake you. He'll always be there. He is a faithful friend beyond our ability to understand what a faithful friend is. He's got this. When all others leave me, verse 16 reminds me that God is present, and sometimes he even sends other people that will pay the price of finding out where I am just so they can come alongside of me and love on me and encourage me. You know how many ways this guy has helped me in my genes. Onesiphorus, don't know much about this guy, but he obviously was listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you for in closing, and I promise this is the last of the closing. <laughs> you know, when a, per, when a pastor says in closing, what means is he's only got 15 minutes more and five more points to make in his sermon. I promise I, I won't do that to you. But I just want you to know on what a firm foundation your faith rests. This is bedrock material. Some people have denied that Paul was ever a historical person, that the Bible is just a collection of books written by men over time. None of these people are real. It's all fiction, you know. Well, looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, he was attested to as a literal physical man by Roman sources, Christian sources, and Jewish sources in the first century. He was seen in his risen form by over 500 eyewitnesses. That's pretty that's pretty firm foundation stuff, but let me share you this about the Apostle Paul. Jerome, in his book, De Viris Illustribus, written in 392 A.D., he mentions that Paul, the Apostle Paul, after his execution, was buried in the Ostian Way at Rome. And then in 2002, an eight-foot-long marble sarcophagus inscribed with the words, Paulo Apostolo Mart, in Latin, Paul Apostle Martyr. This sarcophagus was discovered during excavations around the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls on the Via Ostensis, the Ostian Way, the very place that, that Jerome in the 4th century had, had indicated. Vatican archaeologists declared this to be the tomb of the Apostle Paul in 2005. In June of 2009, Pope Benedict XVI announced excavation results concerning the tomb. The sarcophagus was not opened but was examined by means of a bore scope that's used typically on jet engines and fine work like that to diagnose uh, issues going on. And it reveals several pieces of incense, purple and blue linen, and small bone fragments that were radiocarbon dated to the latter half of the first century. We know that Paul lived. We know that he died. 
we now have his sarcophagus. Somebody will obviously bow down to it at some point in time. That's not the point of this. I just want to show you that he was a real man who lived in a real time and had real issues that he faced, a real ministry that was God-given. And when his time was coming to an end, he passed it on to his spiritual sons, whether it was Timothy or Titus. There's a legacy. Are you investing in that legacy? Because any one of us could give up the ghost tomorrow. Any one of us. Life is fragile. It is fleeting. God wants you to worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Trust Him in everything. Time's too short. Don't walk in fear. Don't walk in doubt. Don't walk in insecurity. Don't walk half-hearted. Jesus had a message for the last day's church in, uh, in the book of Revelation where he wrote to the church at Laodicea and said, the lukewarm thing, he said, it kind of nauseates me. Don't do it. Lukewarm means I don't feel the need to change. If you're really, really hot, you know you need to get in out of the weather, you're going to fry. If you're really, really cold, you, need, you know that you need to get indoors, you're going you're gonna to die of hypothermia. But when you're lukewarm, you just kind of settle for where you're at low living down here. That's not the will of God for you. It's not a place where of happiness and peace and joy, love and contentment. So why would you want to continue living down here when God wants you living up here with your heart on the hope that we have in heaven, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that gives us strength and meaning and purpose and, and pours spiritual gifts into us so that we can minister effectively these last days. There is so much he has given us. Don't live for the paltry things of this world. It's soon coming to an end. Sooner than you think. First time in 70 years that Russia and China have threatened us with nuclear catastrophe. What? Then we've got Iran that has enriched uranium to 60%. Takes two weeks to enrich from 60% to 90%, which is weapons-grade uranium, and all they need then is a nuclear weapons delivery system. Next bomb to fall may fall, maybe nuclear that falls on Israel. Boy, wouldn't that touch off an interesting global situation. Are you ready? Absolutely. Am I walking in fear about who's going to nuke who? No, the Bible says they're going to nuke each other, but I'm going to be gone. <laughs> so have a nuke party after that. I don't, I don't care. I'm not going to be here. But I want to make sure I'm living for him in the meantime. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, it is your desire to fill us to overflowing with love and joy and peace and patience. And we swing wide open the door of our hearts right here and now and say, Lord, Put that stuff in my heart. Give me the peace that passes all understanding and guard my heart in Christ Jesus. Lord, I want to take a new grip with tired hands and stand firm on my tired and shaky legs. I want to hold on to you and grasp on you as solidly as I can these last days. Lord, I know that you've planted spiritual fruit in every one of us. I know that you have planted gifts, spiritual gifts in each one of us. Help us to seek out what those gifts are and to operate in the power of those gifts by your Holy Spirit. There's needs out there. People need to be encouraged. People need to be told the gospel. There's need for teachers and preachers and evangelists and those with the gifts of prophecy and healing and a thousand others. Lord, we want to be your vessels of blessing these last days. Use this for your glory. Transform us, Lord, from glory to glory, more and more into the image of Jesus with every passing day. We commit ourselves into your hands, Heavenly Father, and ask that you bless us.
as your face to shine upon us. But joy in our hearts today, Father, knowing how loved we are. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God is good.